Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. Because it is a good morning, is it not? Yes. All right. <laughs> Believe me, when I ask a question, it's totally okay to answer. Like, sometimes it might be a trick question, but, but that wasn't. It is a good morning. Well, uh, it is my privilege absolute privilege, privilege this morning to talk about solus Christus and Christ alone. Uh, you know, uh, scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, I get to talk about Jesus. That is a privilege. So uh, I want to talk some about what we've already covered, uh, just as, as a refresher in case you've missed some of the stuff. Uh, what was the first thing we covered in the series of the five solas? Remember, if you ask a question, it's totally okay to answer. We covered sola scriptura. Thank you. And what does that mean? Scripture, it's, it's up on the screen in case you're having difficulty. So, uh, yeah, according to Scripture alone, that when it comes to all matters of faith, salvation, that the Scripture alone is our authority. It doesn't mean that... Uh, the, the traditions or the creeds of men have no place, but they only have a place as long as they line up with the Word of God, right. which is why when, no matter who it is you're listening to, no matter who the teacher, who the preacher, always take what they say back to the Word of God. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bereans, in Acts 17, Paul and Silas were kicked out of Thessalonica, and they went to Berea, and Paul said that the Bereans were noble-minded. Why did he say that? He said that the Bereans took what Paul said, and it said and they searched the Scriptures to see if what Paul said lined up with the Scriptures. And then it says, and as a result, many of them believed. You know, Paul didn't say, Bereans, come on, I'm Paul, you can trust me. He didn't say that. He said they were noble-minded because they didn't just take his word for it. So sola scriptura, scripture alone is our authority. And then the second one we covered was, I think I heard it out there, sola gratia, which is grace alone. In other words, God's unmerited favor is what makes salvation available to us. It's not our merit. It's not because we really, really deserved it. What was the third one? Sola fide, by faith alone. For it is by grace you have been saved through, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not according to works. Salvation by grace through faith. It's not what we can do. It's not what we can do to earn or deserve our salvation. It's not because of who we are. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which most of you are familiar with, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. That whole first chapter talks about God's purpose in doing what he did in saving you. And it always says, basically, because he wanted to. That's why he saved you. It was always according to his purposes. It was according to his will, according to the riches of his grace. Your salvation is all according to God, not you. Grace, faith. And then today, solus Christus, in Christ alone. 
Now, the Reformers uh, were protesting the Catholic Church. Uh, I think you've probably gotten that so far in, in everything we've talked about. Um, what is it that they were protesting that made Solus Christus part of these five solas, the alone, in these things alone? Well, with the Catholic Church, <clears throat> they said, yeah, salvation is in Christ. But also, uh, they had several other things that we would point to that aided us in claiming our salvation. One of those things was the Eucharist, the Mass. Um, according to the Catholic Church, this is one of their uh, doctrines. It says, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. So in other words, they talked, we've talked about transubstantiation where they believe that the, the, the wine and the bread literally become the body and the blood of Christ. And they say that uh, because that happens, the mass aids you in your salvation because it is a, an unbloody sacrifice of Christ when you take the Eucharist. That you have the bloody sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the unbloody sacrifice of Christ in the Eucharist. Now, I would say there's a problem with that. Why would I say that? Because Scripture does. Remember, sola scriptura. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said this in chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. A single sacrifice for all time. Why does, it, why does it make a point of saying he sat down at the right hand of God? He's finished. His work is done. He doesn't have to stand daily offering like the priests do. He said, it is finished. His sacrifice paid for our sins once for all. So the reformers saw that and said, well, what the church is saying about mass, the Eucharist, no, there is no continual sacrifice, an unbloody sacrifice every Sunday that aids us in our salvation, that we have to take Eucharist in order to maintain our salvation. Have you guys ever heard of Mary, the mother of Jesus? Anybody here? Name, does that name ring a bell? Yeah. Uh, the Catholic Church believes, and this is again one of their, their doctrines, it says, she currently intercedes for the church, bringing the gifts of eternal salvation to believers and functions as our advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. Have you guys ever heard the word mediatrix? It's kind of fun to say mediatrix. Unfortunately, it's wrong. It's not true. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says this to Timothy. 
in verse 5. He says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Mediatrix means a female mediator. This says there is one mediator between us and God, Jesus. Not Mary, Jesus. There is one. In John 14, and these are all just bonus passages for right now. We haven't gotten to the the good stuff yet. In the book of John, John 14. John 14, verses 15, 16, 17. So it's easy to remember, John 14, 15, 16, 17. It says this. If you love me, this is Jesus talking, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even Mary, my mom. Anybody uh, catch maybe I didn't read that right? I will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. And then down into verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So this whole Mary being our advocate, helper, benefactrix, benefactress, mediatrix, well, the position wasn't open for Mary. That position's already filled by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So Mary, and it's interesting, Mary is actually rarely mentioned in the, in the Gospels. And after Acts chapter 1, she disappears completely. After Acts chapter 1, she's never mentioned again. Paul, Peter, James, the epistles, none of the epistles even mention her. So I don't know why the Catholics lift her up as this, but in Luke 1, when the angel comes and announces to Mary that she is going to uh, give birth to Jesus, it's called the Magnificat. It's, it's the song of praise that she sings. And she starts off by singing to God. She says, uh, she calls God her Savior. Uh, it's in Luke 1. But she calls God her Savior. So did Mary recognize her need for a Savior? I'd say so. So when we look to Mary to aid us in our salvation, it's kind of like a drowning person reaching for another drowning person to save them. It's not going to end well. So Mary, no, she's not one to help us in our salvation. Uh, the Pope. The Pope has several titles, actually. Um, the Pope, the Pontiff, and the Vicar of Christ. How many of you guys know what a vicar is? It's a, somebody who stands in place of, a substitute for. Somebody who uh, comes to say, well, this person is gone, so I am standing in his place. Now, did Jesus already say, when I go, I'm going to send somebody? I'm going to send you the Pope, right? And he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is sent in place of Christ, but also, in another way, Think of it this way. Is Jesus with us? Do we need the Pope then? No. But anyhow, vicar of Christ, the one who is there in the absence of another. Jesus said, it's good for you that I go, for if I do not go, the Holy Spirit won't come. 
So we have the Holy Spirit. Um, Pontiff, Pontiff Maximus. Sounds like a gladiator, doesn't it? I am Pontiff Maximus. It means, Pontiff basically means the bridge. The one who stands between. The one who enables us to go from here to there. Who is the one who stands between us and God? There is only one mediator. So here the Pope has got the title of the Holy Spirit. He's got the role of Jesus. And then Pope means Father. Hmm. I don't need to say more on that. Jesus said, call no one Father. Because you have one, your Heavenly Father. So here we, the Pope has been given the role, the title of every person in the Trinity. Something tells me that's not right. How about you? So these are some of the things that the Reformers looked at and said, that's not right. We don't need these for salvation. We don't have to have the Eucharist in order to be saved. We don't have to go to Mary in order to be saved. We don't have to go to the Pope in order to be saved. And where did they get these ideas that they didn't need those things? Sola Scriptura. They looked to Scripture as their authority alone. And uh, we've talked about several different reformers. We've talked about uh, uh, Wycliffe. We've talked about Zwingli. We've talked about uh, Luther. Uh, there is another guy, a guy named Philip Melanchthon. How many guys have ever heard of him? Philip Melanchthon. Few of you have. Few of you have. Uh, here's, he's one of my favorites. Okay, actually, I didn't hear of him until like a few weeks ago. I admit it. Uh, but uh, uh, Philip Melanchthon, he was a contemporary with Martin Luther. Uh, in fact, he was, he was Martin Luther's best friend. Uh, he, was, he was alive at the same time. He was uh, Martin Luther's best friend, and he was very used by God in the early days of the Reformation. Uh, in fact, he, he and Luther made a great team. Philip Melanchthon was considered the intellect behind the, the, the Reformation compared to what they called Luther's simplistic ideas. So uh, we were talking yesterday about how uh, Luther translated the New Testament into German in 11 weeks. But Philip Melanchthon is the one who is the intellect. So imagine how smart that guy must have been. Uh, I think it was uh, Justin who was making the joke, oh, Luther, it took you 11 weeks to do that? You know, so, but, but Melanchthon was considered the intellect behind it. Uh, he was the first systematic theologian. Uh, how many guys have ever heard of systematic theology? Had heard that term, term tossed around. Basically, what systematic theology is, it says, okay, salvation in Jesus. What does all of Scripture say about salvation in Jesus. Let's bring that all together to see what the whole Word of God says about this issue, this topic. And so that, that's all systematic theology is. It's saying, let's look at the whole of Scripture and see what all of Scripture says about this one thing. And Melanchthon is considered the first systematic uh, theologian of the Reformation. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about Zwingli and Luther and how they could be unreasonable at times, uh, even with their own brothers in Christ. Uh, Melanchthon was very much in contrast to that. He was very much a peacekeeper, non-confrontational guy. He, he liked to try to look for the common ground that Christians had together. 
And uh, as a result of this, even though he and Luther were best friends, because he was such a peacemaker, sometimes Luther considered him a little bit of a coward. Now, to me, it's kind of sad that somebody who is a peacemaker would be considered a coward. Blessed are the... So, uh, again, we find that even though these are all men that God used, they weren't perfect. They were not perfect. Every one of them had flaws, and we wouldn't line up doctrinally with everything they taught. But God did still use these men. God still did use these men. Uh, Again, there was a lot that uh, Melanchthon did. He wrote a book called Dilosi Communes. How many guys have read it? Oh, come on. Everybody's seen that book, right? Dilosi Communes. Uh, the English title means commonplaces. And again, uh, Melanchthon looked for commonplaces uh, for all Christians where we can agree on these essentials of the Christian faith. And basically, uh, Dilosi Communes was a systematic theology going through the book of Romans. And he used the book of Romans to show how we should understand and look at Scripture. And one of the things that he really did in uh, Dilosi Communes was he looked at the juxtaposition between law versus gospel. The law versus gospel. And in reading the book of Romans, he, he saw that there were several different kinds of law. There is what he called natural law. There is what he called divine law and then man-made or civic law that he saw throughout the book of Romans. And when it came to natural law and divine law, he juxtaposed those or contrasted those with the gospel and justification in Christ alone versus the law. Versus the law. And that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. And just as uh, Melanchthon did that using the book of Romans, I do as well. But I do want to share some of the things that uh, Melanchthon said before we jump into Scripture here. And uh, one thing he said, these are some of my favorite quotes from him as I was doing my research for this. He said, faith is not belief, and you go, yeah, there we go. Faith is not belief in the history of Christ as the godless think, but belief in the purpose of Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. For he took on flesh, was crucified, and rose from the dead in order to justify all those who would believe in him. In other words, he's saying faith is not simply believing that historically Jesus existed. Faith is not simply some mental assent that, yeah, Jesus lived and he was crucified and, yeah, I believe that, so I'm going to heaven. And he said, no, that's not faith. It's a belief in the purpose of Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. Why? To justify all those who would believe in him. He also said, men cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merits, or works, but are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake who by his death has made satisfaction for our sins. This faith God imputes for righteousness in his sight. So again, he was saying, this isn't about what you can do. This is about Jesus. 
Which brings us to our next quote from him, which I, this is probably my favorite quote from him. Here I must take counsel of the gospel, much echoing what Luther said when he said, I have to go according to the word of God. He says, I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, but what Jesus Christ, the son of God has done for me that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that it's not about what I should do. It is about what Christ has already done. Now, there is one more quote I want to share from him. Uh, Don't worry, Matt, don't get worried. It's not in the PowerPoint. He's probably like, I don't see it. Uh, in his preface to writing about the natural law in Dosi or Dilosi communes, uh, he said this to his readers. And this is probably, this is actually my second favorite quote from him. And I would do a great injustice this morning if I didn't do as he says here. He says this, I do not wish you to learn these topics from me as a teacher but as from one who advises from Scripture and not from his own commentary. For believe me, it matters much whether you seek the substance of these such things from the fountains or the caverns. For from the caverns, not only sweeter waters are drawn, but also purer. For how much more certain is that which the Scripture prescribes than that which is gathered from commentaries." In other words, what uh, Melanchthon was saying, he would be aghast if I spent the rest of this morning quoting him and not going to Scripture. He would be aghast if I spent the rest of this morning telling you what I think about things rather than going to Scripture. So this morning, let's practice sola scriptura and dive in to the Word of God. In Romans chapter 5, And this is where we'll be spending pretty much the rest of the morning. So you can turn there if you brought your Bibles. Uh, If you didn't bring your Bibles with you, heathen. All right. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) If you you didn't bring your Bibles with you, we do have... (laughs) If you didn't bring your Bibles with you, we do have some in the back. But I do encourage you uh, to bring your Bibles, whether it's it's on your phone, whether uh, it's hard copy encourage you to bring your own Bibles with you because again we need to be good Bereans don't take my word for it look to the scriptures to make sure that what I am saying lines up with this so uh, Romans chapter 5 beginning in verse 12 says this therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin so death spread to all men because all sinned For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. How many of you guys have ever read a comic book? How many guys would consider yourself comic book geeks? I'm a comic book geek. I'm not afraid to admit it. Uh, I have a favorite superhero. Anybody know? Captain America. I know those who know me well know that it's Captain America. I, I love Captain America. I love what he stands for. Uh, some people, you know, I let my son one time watch uh, just a small clip of the Avengers. Uh, I wanted him, the Battle of New York. I wanted him to see Captain America in action. So I let him watch that small clip so he could see Captain America in action. And when, when I turn it off, I'm like, so what do you think? He goes, wow, I like the Hulk. disappointment man but uh so there are a lot of superheroes out there captain america hulk superman you know so you've got captain america hulk superman batman wolverine you've got all these superheroes different comic book companies but all of them have one thing in common what is the one thing that you think every superhero has in common They've got a superpower, yep. Uh, very ki different kinds of superpowers. Fighting. Fighting. They save the world. Spandex. What? <laughs> Spandex. <laughs> All right, yeah. Actually, I, I did hear something back here. They're not real. I love Captain America, but he doesn't exist. He's, <laughs> he's not real. The Hulk is not real. Batman is not real. <laughs> okay, I'll give you that one. When it comes to heroes, there is only one. There is only one one hero and we get to talk about him today we get to talk about him today and that's what's so exciting is we can talk about this hero and know that he is not out of a comic book he is real he is the definition of what is real for everything Colossians says came into existence through him 
He is the originator of what is real. The one true hero. And we get to talk about him today. So uh, verses 12 through 14 there. Again, uh, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, death spread to all men because all sin. For indeed, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Did Adam have the Ten Commandments? No. It didn't come until Moses. It didn't come until Moses. So Adam didn't have what we call the Mosaic Law. All the laws and regulations that God gave to Moses, which the Ten Commandments was part of that. Adam didn't have that. Adam, through Moses, didn't have that. Did a lot of men live between those those two men? Yeah. A lot of people lived between Adam and Moses, and they did not have the Mosaic Law. They did not have the Ten Commandments. And so that's that's why he's saying, you know, there was, the law was not there, that sin existed before the law. But if the Ten Commandments weren't there, how could they be held accountable for sin? Well, Romans chapter 1, which happens to come before Romans chapter 5, Paul lays something down back in Romans chapter 1. He says this, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then over in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul, or, yeah, Paul says this. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Paul says that no, there was not the Mosaic law. There was not some specifically revealed law or command from God. But through God's creation, he revealed what we think of as natural law, one of the things we think of as a natural law, which uh, Philip Melanchthon liked to point out, that natural law says this, look out the window and you realize there's a creator. Look out the window and you realize there is a God. That's why he says men are without excuse. From Adam to Moses, those who did not honor God had no excuse. Natural law says this, There is a God worthy to be worshipped. There is a God worthy to be worshipped. 
And from Adam to Moses, people disobeyed the natural law and did not honor God or give him thanks as he deserved. But they made gods in their own images, images of, excuse me, creeping creatures, four-footed beasts. There is a natural law. And, And Paul also went on to say that God's natural law is also written on our hearts. How many guys know that it's wrong to push a two-year-old down a flight of steps for the fun of it? We all know that. There is no, there's not an 11th command, thou shalt not push a two-year-old. We don't need a written out command for that. We know it intrinsically. We know there is right and wrong. Some things are acceptable, some things are not. That is the natural law. Men from Adam to Moses had a natural law. They may not have had the divine law, like the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, but there was a natural law that God put on their hearts. There is a natural law that God made evident through creation. And men sinned against God through disobeying this natural law by going against their conscience, by suppressing and rejecting the truth of God through creation. So, from Adam through Moses, people sinned without the Mosaic law, yet they sinned according to the natural law. And it says there in verse 12 that sin entered the world through Adam and that we all exist under that curse of sin from Adam to the newest newborn. We all exist under that curse of sin, which means we all need a Savior Just as Mary said, I praise God, my Savior. She recognized her need for a Savior. We need to recognize our need for a Savior. Because of from Adam through the newest newborn today, we all exist under the curse of sin. He goes on to say in verse 15, but the free gift is and I want you to know this this passage, Romans 5, 12 through 21. It's going to be very unsatisfying this morning because I can only go over some of the basics. This is such a deep, rich, meaty portion of Scripture, and I would love to dig into everything. Um, But we don't have four or five hours. Well, yeah, we do. Let's do it. All right. Uh, So we are, there's going to be things we read, and you're going to go, I wonder what that means. Hate to disappoint you, I'm not going to answer those things this morning because I'm just going to cover the basics. But at verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So Paul is setting something up for all of the Uh, coming comparisons and it's this phrase much more but the free gift is not like the trespass for if many died through one man's trespass much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded to many so keep that phrase in mind much more so the free gift is not like the trespass so he's comparing two things here Adam's trespass and the free gift through Christ And he's not saying that the free gift coexists with the trespass. He's saying much more. The free gift 
destroys. It exists well beyond. It has much more impact than Adam's trespass. So with that phrase, much more, Paul is not just saying, hey, there's the trespass, there's the gift, you know, they're there together. No, the gift trumps the trespass. It is much more. It destroys the trespass. Now, that's a very uh, intellectual thought. I mean, that is something, yeah, we intellectually assent and agree with that. But think about this. One man's trespass has affected and brought under the curse of sin every single person ever born from him until now. That's some serious impact. That's a serious effect. That's a powerful effect. Every single person in the history of the world has been affected by that one man's trespass. And then Jesus comes along and it says, much more. This isn't just some, oh yeah, yeah, it's much more. Think about that. How would you guys love it if something you said today had an effect on thousands of people for the gospel? If one thing you said today had an effect on thousands of people, Adam affected billions. He affected billions. And Christ comes along and says, you ain't seen nothing yet. <gasps> Much more. And it says, uh, and this, so keep that phrase much more in mind. And he also says, uh, the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. That's another phrase to keep in mind. One man. One. One man. So the phrase much more and the phrase one man. Not two, not three. One, one man. So verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. We read a minute ago that passage out of Romans 1 where it says that the wrath of God is revealed against mankind revealed against mankind because of their unrighteousness, because of their wickedness. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Do you realize you were born under condemnation because of Adam? How many guys go, oh, that's, that's not fair. Because of Adam's sin, I get the wrath of God. Because of Adam's sin, I am a child of wrath, as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. Because of Adam's sin, he's going to pour his wrath out on me, like Paul says in Romans 1. How unfair is that? Now, if you want to cry foul at that, if you want to cry unfair then I want to challenge you to have some intellectual integrity and cry unfair at the rest of the verse. 
If you want to cry, it's unfair that we are under condemnation because of Adam's one act, then it is unfair that you are rescued from that wrath because of Jesus's one act. You say, I didn't sin like Adam, so why should I get the condemnation? You didn't live a perfect life and sacrifice yourself either. So it's unfair that you should have the righteousness of Christ. If you want to say it's unfair because you are under condemnation and wrath because of Adam, then it is unfair that God looks at you through the lens of what Christ did on the cross. That's what makes God so awesome. Yes, we are all guilty, born under condemnation because of Adam. And we all have the opportunity to be freed from that wrath because of Christ. God is an awesome God. He is an awesome God. And I love this quote from John MacArthur that really helps us understand the impact, the power of what Christ did. It says, despite the fact that God hates sin so much that one sin could damn the entire human race, his loving grace toward man is so great that he provides not only for the redemption of one man from one sin, but for the redemption for all men from all sins. Remember how we were talking about the impact of Christ? Adam committed one sin, and it damned the entire human race to the wrath of God. And sin after sin after person after person built up. Billions of trespasses from billions of people. Billions of sin. God said that one sin was enough to condemn everybody. Adam's one act was enough to condemn everybody. And now, after thousands of years of sin building up, sin after sin, trespass after trespass, Christ's one act obliterates the guilt of all of them, has the power to obliterate the guilt of all of them, I should say. And that's the way John MacArthur puts it here. He provides for the redemption of not only one man from one sin, but for the redemption for all men from all sins. So John MacArthur isn't saying that all sins have been wiped out by Christ because then, hey, everybody's going to heaven. We know that's not true. But the power of Christ's sacrifice was that powerful. It was that powerful. His one, Adam's one sin condemned us all. And that's why Paul says here, uh, Following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free, the free gift following many trespasses, many trespasses brought justification. And condemnation and justification were legal terms. Uh, we won't go through all that they mean, but let it suffice with this. You can't be condemned and justified at the same time. You can't be both. If you're sitting here this morning and you are justified, then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I made that up. (laughs) Plagiarism. (laughs) There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've been justified by by what Christ did on the cross, then there is therefore now no condemnation. The power of what Christ did for us 
on the cross. So we are delivered not only from the sin that condemned us, that is Adam's sin, we are delivered from every sin, the power of the cross. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as the trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So again, you see that phrase, one man, one man, one man. Do you think Paul is trying to get something across to us? One man, one man, Jesus Christ. Uh, He talks about how death reigned through Adam, reigned over us. To reign over means to be in control of. We were under the control of a tyrant. Death. Sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, he said, He who sins is the slave to sin. We were slaves. We were bound. There was no waging a civil war to free us. We were slaves to sin, and there was nothing we could do to escape. We were slaves. But it says here, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace with the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We will reign in life. Let this sink in for a moment. You were a slave to sin. And Jesus Christ stepped into history and he took you a slave and he made you a king. You will reign in life. He freed you from your slavery. In Romans 6, when it says that we've been freed from sin, typically when we talk about slaves being freed, you had your master, you had your slave, and the word we typically use for freed means you were taken out from under that yoke, and now you are equals with your former master. The word Paul uses in Romans 6 doesn't doesn't carry that with it. The word Paul uses in Romans 6 when he says you've been freed from sin carries with it the idea that sin, slave. We were slaves to sin. It was our master. And Christ freed us from sin and put us over our former master. We have been freed, not just to be made equal with but to be greater than our former master. How many of you guys think that's good news? Why don't your faces look like it? (laughs) That is good news, people. But it's also, in a way, kind of bad news, because you know what it means? Nobody in here has ever been, who is a believer, has ever been defeated by temptation. Nobody in here has ever lived a defeated Christian life. That's an oxymoron. Christ lives in you. Can he be defeated? No. So the bad news is this. When we sin, it's because we choose to. 
Our master, our former master has no power over us. We can't be defeated. We can't live anything less than a victorious Christian life unless by our own choice we surrender to sin. You weren't defeated. You surrender. We have been freed. We reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We have been freed from the yoke of slavery so that we never have to sin again. We never have to, but we do choose to. We do choose to. And again, the righteousness of Christ is much more, much more than Adam's righteousness. Now, isn't righteousness righteousness? No, no. Adam's righteousness was the righteousness of a perfect man. When he was created, he was created perfect. He was righteous before God because he had done no wrong. He had unhindered fellowship, communion with God. He had the righteousness of a perfect man. But from Adam, what can we learn about the righteousness of man? It fails. It falters. Much more is the righteousness of Christ. Christ doesn't have simply the righteousness of a perfect man. He has the righteousness of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Therefore, his righteousness isn't something that can falter. It's not a righteousness that can fail. Adam's was. Why is that important? Why is it important to differentiate, to distinguish between Adam's righteousness and Christ's? Because it's exciting for the ramifications for us when we think about the difference between the righteousness of a perfect man and the righteousness of Christ. In Romans chapter 3, In verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. The righteousness of God for who? All who believe. When Christ died on the cross, do you know what he did not do? He did not restore to you the righteousness of Adam. He gave you his own righteousness. That's right. Through Christ, we have a righteousness that will not falter. It will not fail. And that's why when God looks at us today, when he looks at us through the lens of what Christ did, he sees a perfect righteousness. That is our position in Christ. Now, we all know that living in our day-to-day -day lives, we don't always live that out. We don't always live that out. But God has imputed. How many of you guys ever heard the word imputed? Yeah, it sounds like, oh, I just imputed. So, but what it means is to take something and put it into somebody's account, so to speak, to, to make it part of them, to give it to them, 
to make it as though it's theirs, even though it's really not. One of the uh, theological phrases that we see in systematic theology is called the imputed righteousness of Christ. And what that means is Christ has a perfect, flawless, incorruptible righteousness as God. And because of his death, through Jesus Christ, God imputes, or he takes that righteousness that does not belong to us, and he makes it as though it is ours. We have a perfect, incorruptible righteousness in God imputed to us from Christ. Not some righteousness of a perfect man. God didn't restore us to be like Adam. He gave us something so much better. His own righteousness. His own righteousness. Last couple of verses here. Verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's talking about the law came to increase the trespass. Now, didn't God give us the law so that if we lived according to it, we'd be made righteous before him? No. No. God knew that we would never be able to live up to the law. And before we talk more about the law, we've talked about Adam, and now these last couple of verses, um, Paul shifts from talking about Adam and Jesus to talking about the law. So as we shift from Adam to the law, I want to say one more thing about Adam. He was created perfect. He was created perfect perfect, which meant that he could pass to his offspring a perfect, unflawed, unre or, uh, unflawed regenerate nature, a, a nature that was not tainted by sin. He could have passed on to his children an uninterrupted communion with God. He could have done for us very similar to something, to what Jesus did for us. Jesus gave us perfect communion with God. Adam could have done that same thing, but his one sin blew it. His one sin, his one act of disobedience blew it. Because of that one sin, he could not pass anything to his offspring but the curse of sin. So, if a perfect man, who at that time had one sin to his account, could do nothing to aid in the salvation of his offspring, how is the Pope going to do it? I think the Pope probably has more than one sin to his account. If a perfect man with one sin to his account couldn't provide anything for his offspring but death, how is Mary going to aid us in our salvation? If a perfect man with one sin to his account can pass nothing to his offspring but the wrath of God, how can you do anything for your salvation? How can your good works, how can your 
intrinsic inherent merit do anything to aid in your salvation if Adam couldn't do it? Somebody who was created righteous, somebody who was not born under the curse of sin like us, somebody who was not born under the wrath of God, if he couldn't do it, then no man can, including you yourself. Then we come back to the law. Romans 3, verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Then a, a passage in Galatians. If I can get there. Passage in Galatians. Galatians 2.16. Well, I'll start with 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So why give us the law? If you're drowning and don't know it, are you ever going to cry out for help? No. God gave us the law so that we would realize how desperately we need him. The law is our tutor to teach us, I need God. The law is our tutor to teach us, I need grace. The law is our tutor to teach us, I need a savior. The law was given so we would realize how fallible, flawed we are, how wicked we are. And no man, no prince, no pope, no person can bring you salvation. It is through the one man Jesus Christ. The one man, Jesus Christ. Salvation comes through Christ alone. And how much more is his grace compared to the condemnation of Adam? How much more? Salvation through Christ alone. And, uh, you know, every good sermon has an application. And, and I do have an application. If you're sitting here this morning and you are not a believer, you have not come to the point to realize your need for a Savior, well, I can't make you realize that, but I can tell you how much you need one. And that Savior isn't you. That Savior isn't the Pope or anyone else. That Savior is Jesus Christ alone, and it's by faith alone, by grace alone. You can't earn his favor. You don't deserve his favor. None of us can. None of us can earn it. None of us deserve it. It is by faith alone. And faith, again, is not simply believing that Jesus exists. Faith is realizing, I am a sinner before a holy, righteous God. 
a perfect judge from whom there is no escape. I need a savior. I need Jesus because my sin is wrong and I deserve judgment. That's the application if you're sitting here today and you're, you're not a believer, that you need Christ alone. For the believer sitting here this morning, I have a different application. Over in Genesis 1, verse 15, This is after uh, oh, sorry, not 115. Uh, sorry about that. It is 3:15, Genesis 3:15. It's after the fall, and God is telling Adam and Eve the consequences of their sin. And he says this in verse 15, speaking of the serpent, the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall, he shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He's saying that Mary's offspring would crush the head of the serpent, and his heel would be bruised. In other words, the one who would come would crush, but he wouldn't come out unscathed. This is widely received to be the first promise of a Savior. And then from this point on, for thousands of years, the prophets of God said, God will send the Messiah. God will send a Savior. Who do you guys think the most privileged prophet was? Any thoughts? John the Baptist. Listen to what John the Baptist said in the book of John. Chapter 1. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For thousands of years, prophets didn't get to say that. They said, he's going to come. God will send him. And then John, for thousands of years, hundreds of prophets, he is the one who doesn't say, God will send him. He is the one who gets to say, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Savior. Behold the fulfillment of God's promise. The Savior has come. The Savior is here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one man, Jesus Christ. The one man, Jesus Christ. And I want to read one last passage. And this is the application for believers this morning. Revelation 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Now consider who was there. David, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Peter, Paul. They're all here. They're part of the multitude. And yet no one was found worthy to open the seal, to open the scroll. Multitudes upon multitudes. The greatest, the the, the men we would consider the greatest of the faith. All there. And not a single one worthy to open the scroll. And John says he began to weep loudly. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Behold, Jesus. He is worthy. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now imagine this. Multitudes are gathered before the throne of God and there is this scroll and not a single person is worthy to open it. And the elder says, behold, and the multitudes part And there stands Jesus. There stands our Savior, our King. And in all the universe, in all the history of everybody, he alone was the one who was worthy. That's our Savior. That's our King. The only one in all the universe who is worthy. Our King And it says, he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to open the scroll, to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. When I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. One man, Jesus Christ, worthy alone in all the universe to receive honor and glory, blessing and power. And what was the natural result? 
when they beheld the Lamb displaying his worth, displaying his glory, they fell down and worshiped. It wasn't some organized thing where they said, okay, everybody, uh, let's sing now. This was what came out when they were confronted with the worthiness of Christ. And it says, he was worthy for he has conquered. What has he conquered? Sin and death. He alone has conquered sin and death. Salvation, justification by Christ alone. And because of that, he is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. So believer, this morning, what will you do with Jesus? Will you let this just be some mental ascent kind of message? Or will you behold your Savior as they do here and say, He is worthy. The one man, Jesus Christ, is worthy of worship. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for who you are and your love and your compassion that you looked down upon us knowing that we were condemned, knowing that we were slaves of our own sin and there was nothing we could do. But in your grace and your mercy, you sent your son. Jesus, I thank you for what you have done on the cross. I thank you for taking my sin I thank you for paying the penalty that I should have paid. I thank you for giving me your own righteousness that I may stand with confidence before God, that I may approach the throne of grace with boldness, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. Thank you so much. I pray that those here this morning who are not yours, I pray that they will see what they are missing. I pray that you will open their eyes to their own need for a Savior, that you open their eyes to the heinousness of their own sin, Father, and they will cry out to you knowing that there is no deaf ear from you. Father, I pray for those here this morning who are believers, that they will be moved by your Spirit working in them to worship you in spirit and in truth, that it won't simply be some emotional response, Father, but it will be a true spiritual stirring in them when confronted with the truth of who you are and the magnitude of your worth. Father, we do stand in awe of you. Jesus, we do stand in awe of you for you alone are worthy to receive glory and blessing and honor and power and majesty. In your name we pray, amen.